This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger in this week's episode number 200. Look, transformation doesn't happen overnight. But what could potentially happen overnight is a big catastrophe where your infrastructure could be down because you did not spend the days upgrading and changing and having a very solid infrastructure. The COVID pandemic has slashed demand for a wide range of products, from gasoline to suits and dress shoes. But business and digital certificates to secure online transactions and other activity is booming, pandemic or not. Alas, more certificates means more work for companies who hope to manage those certificates and keep them safe and secure. In our second segment this week, we're joined by Avesta Hajati of the firm DigiCert to talk about the challenge of managing a growing population of digital certificates and how automation may be the answer for overstressed IT groups. But first, life for independent security researchers has changed a lot in the last 30 years. Modern information security industry grew out of the pioneering works of groups like Loft Heavy Industries in Boston and the Cult of the Dead Cow. After spending decades operating in the shadows of the software industry and in legal limbo, vulnerability hunters now have full-fledged careers earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year through bug bounty programs. But a stigma can still hang over security researchers, and despite the emergence of bug bounty programs, there are still plenty of blurry lines separating legal security research from illegal hacking. Despite that, the need for innovative and ethical security work has never been greater. What does a 21st century hacking crew look like? Our next guest is trying to answer that question. John Jackson is an independent security researcher and the co-founder of a new group, Sakura Samurai, which includes a diverse array of security pros ranging from a 15-year-old Australian teenager to Aubrey Cottle, a.k.a. Kurtaner, the founder of the group Anonymous. Their goal is to energize the world of ethical hacking with daring and attention-grabbing discoveries that stay on the right side of the double yellow line. In this interview, John and I talk about his recent research, including vulnerabilities he helped discover in smart television sets by the Chinese firm TCL, a common open-source security module used worldwide, and infrastructure owned and operated by the United Nations. To start out, I asked John to talk a little bit about himself and about Sakura Samurai, the group he founded. So I'm John Jackson, and I'm an application security engineer and the founder of Sakura Samurai. John, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You and I have actually been talking for a few months now um, about a bunch of different stories that Security Ledger has written on uh, TCL smart TVs and Neopets and um, what else? What am I missing? NPM private. NPM. Uh, private IP. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. So we've <laughs> we've had a uh, we've had a very full um, like signal and email relationship, um, but I'd never have you on a show. 
And actually, this is for episode 200, John. Wow. Well, congrats on that. Thank you very much. Talk about your work. Talk about all the work that you do, because you have, you wear many hats. Sure. Uh, I mean, my day-to-day, I'm a blue teamer. So I'm an application security engineer, which just entails uh, configuring and managing application security tools. Uh, there's a whole suite of them. Um, one of the other things I do is I run a bug bounty program, and I am actually writing a book about establishing and managing bug bounty programs. So that's going to come out in June of 2021 through Wiley. Wow. Are you, are you like 33? Is this like your Jesus year or something? No, no, I'm actually 26, believe it or not. You know, a lot of, a lot of people have said that. And I, I really think it's because of uh, the pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah right. really. Kind of everybody's Jesus year. Like there's just, there's so many people that I've been collaborating with and, and just uh, working with that may not normally be online as much as they, they are. So uh, makes a lot of people bored. You know, everyone wants to do security research and fun stuff. So you blue team on behalf of of a major online application provider. I don't know if you can say their name or not, but but I know who they are. I don't know if you can share who they are. Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows uh, pretty much at this point. Yeah. It's, it's Shutterstock. Really good company. I, I do enjoy blue teaming for them and working for them. So let's let's talk about some of the some of the projects you've been involved in just in the last kind of six months or so. Um, I think the one that got me to introduce to you was uh, was the TCL smart TV vulnerabilities, which you didn't uh, discover. You were kind of brought in by Sick Codes, who I think made the initial discovery. Um, but needed some help. So talk about that one. Um, how did how did that all play out? And uh, and what did you learn? Sure. So uh, actually, Casey Ellis, he is the uh, founder of Bug Crowd. And he has a forums that he uses for helping research researchers get disclosure um, called community.disclose.io. And I was kind of interested in this project and I was like, yeah, you know, I could help out here and there. Um, I, I've helped people get disclosure before. So I figured, you know, why not just give, give back and try to help out? Uh, so I went on the forums and literally like, I think day one or day two of being on these forums, I see sick codes posting about needing some help. So I communicate with them. I'm basically like, Hey man, what's going on? Show me the vulnerability. Right? So he, he shows me the, the vulnerability and I'm like, okay, this is a problem. You know, we should report this. And he's like, dig in, man, dig in. So I'm like, all right. So I start looking more. And now this is where it gets interesting, right? Um, because at this point, it probably could have been disclosed. And we would have just, that that would have been it. It would have just probably been one CVE, um, whatever. But uh, I have blue team experience, right? I have a little bit of web app, web app experience and some API hacking experience. And I started digging through these directories and um, I found something called the uh, terminal manager, right? And when, when I looked at the code for the terminal manager APK, I started seeing these API calls where they were writing data, you know, taking uh, screenshots, uh, uh, recording and all this stuff and sending it to like a Chinese server. And I'm like, are they sending it continuously? Is it happening on demand? I don't know, but this looks like a backdoor. It smells like a backdoor. Mm-hmm. And then, yep. And then the whole escapade started at this point. 
talk about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we didn't want to say that it was a backdoor immediately, right? Because it, it definitely looked like one. But every time something like this happens, it's it's kind of a loaded term. So, exactly, yeah, not a term you throw around lightly. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And normally, I like if it was a application based out of the U.S., I probably would have been more skeptical and dug a lot deeper before I said mm, maybe this is a backdoor. But you know the TCL TVs are are Chinese, right? So yep. uh, China's China has a history of of backdooring products, especially mm-hmm. IoT products. Yep. Um, and then when I started to look up TCL backdoors, I found old stories of backdoors, and I'm like, no way, this is probably just a backdoor reopened. And then you know that that kind of started it, but still, we were gonna err on the side of caution a little bit. Um, but then things just started to get more and more suspicious. So I called their support. Their support said they didn't have a security team, asked me to just give them the vuln over the phone so they could put in their uh, help desk. I said, no, no way. As you know, we started reaching out to people. And then finally, we did get in contact with their with their team, right? But they were just about as confused as us. and And it was just, which is really bad. like, if we could kind of pause and kind of parenthesize sure, yeah. this, TCL is like a huge, huge company. It's the third largest maker of, of television, seller of television sets in North America. It's a huge Chinese conglomerate, electronics maker, phones, TVs, every smart wearables. I mean, everything. This is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar global company. So like the fact that in, in 2020 or 2021, well, it was 2020, you call them up, we contact them about a vulnerability and they say, yeah, we, we don't have a product security team. It's just sort of like. It blew my wow. mind. Honestly, it blew, it's like your it head really It's funny. A couple of days ago, I was like, what if I look at like TCL news in China to see what they're saying about it? Right. Yeah. So I like hopped on a Chinese search engine and I started translating some stuff and uh, it's kind of funny. They were like, it, it looks like I don't know if it's the gov or, or who, but they were pushing out some propaganda saying it's 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 not a backdoor. There's no backdoor in the U.S. Technically, they're right. Technically, they're right. However, they didn't mention the backdoor in their own country and in a lot of other countries, too. And, yeah. yeah, Europe, Europe and just all over the place. Right. They didn't mention anything about that, though. Yeah. They kept saying that to me when I got comments from them, too, as if that mattered. It's like, you know, I, Security Ledger is, an, is a, a publication based in the United States, but it doesn't particularly matter to me that, you know, the Android TCL TVs sold in this country didn't have the backdoor application installed on them. I mean, it, if it, you know, you're still selling hundreds of millions of them in India and other countries and as well as China. So, yeah, but then then I mean, uh, you know, so it's, so it's still a problem. No, exactly. But then, right. but then take sick codes, second CVE finding, right? Where he found that you could, uh, overwrite, uh, the privileges of the, uh, or sorry, overwrite the firmware because the privileges are too lax. And then what do you have? You have a TV in the U S that you could overwrite the firmware and install overseas firmware on it. So, so what do you have now? Now you have, okay, well maybe there's not a backdoor, but you know, do we know that for certain? I, I most certainly didn't test every single US TV to see what version of uh, the firmware that they had, sure. right? I just and know that they had backdoors. Yeah. 
And if you're sort of one software update away from a backdoor, you know, is, is that in and of itself a problem? And I mean, are, you know, I mean, I think the, the bigger question is potentially any smart TV, you know, these days has a, a camera and a, and a microphone because they, oh, yeah. they all do voice recognition. And they're yep. all kind of surveillance devices sitting in your living room. <laughs> I guess, you know, the question that consumers should be asking is, you know, how do any of us really get comfortable that these things aren't? spying on us or couldn't be used to surreptitiously surveil us either for commercial purposes or by, you know, authoritarian governments. I mean, it or it's not a loaded question. It's a loaded. It is. A loaded, those, are, those are my favorite kind. But I, and, I, and I don't actually know the answer to the question, but clearly what TCL is doing is not not putting giving anybody very much comfort. Yeah, I mean, that that for sure is is not the answer what they're doing. But they did stand up a security program. They, they did, yeah, 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 yeah. And their their PR people were very kind of responsive to me once they kind of clued in, and and I think you know did take steps as far as I can tell. I mean, based on their statements, when you sort of look at the combination of a authoritarian government that clearly is very interested in technology enabled surveillance on a mass scale, um, not only in their country but elsewhere making, you know, with with connections to this electronics multinational that's churning out smart TV screens by the million, um, that probably should have people concerned. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I, I think part of the problem is we just don't have a good stance. Like just our, our entire government should have some sort of standard. Right. And and I think we're we're progressively getting there, especially with hacks like solar winds but it's going to take some time and and I think that it's going to be needed at at one point in time especially if we're going to be uh importing electronics from other countries but the other story I thought that you you were involved with was the um NPM private IP uh application it's just talk a little bit about about that that was actually in in some ways much scarier than the, than the TCL than the TCL. which which is funny which is funny it's a, it's actually hilarious that you say that right because and, and i think part of why that got le less coverage is because tv scary right every consumer t has yeah, tv absolutely. in house right yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's just like that type of thing yep. um whereas npm private ip you tell that to someone that's not in tech and they're like what right what does right. that mean right? right what does that mean exactly. to me but it, right it, it does mean something um so basically what ended up happening was uh, we had someone through our bug bounty program report in SSRF vulnerability, right? And it was business as usual. We yeah, resolved it. Server side request forgery for people who are not practitioners. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, so basically what, what it allowed him to do was interact with uh, resources on the server, on the client side, AKA the side that he could see and interact with. Um, however, he wasn't really able to do much. Uh, we fixed it. And then a few weeks later he bypassed it, which isn't too uncommon to, to get someone to bypass it because they're clever and they'll find bypasses occasionally. Then he finds a bypass again. And I'm like, okay, no, this is this, no one should be bypassing it more than once. So, you know, I, I take a look at it and then finally, uh, 
one of uh one of my coworkers, Harold, he actually I'm like, we need to track this down and figure this out. And he's like, hey, well, I figured out the logic for what they're using the block, and it's a uh, npm private IP. So he shows me that they're using regex uh, rules to basically filter out which IPs should be blocked or which IP ranges. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh my God. And I'm like, dude, this is a zero day. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, the entire package is built for preventing SSRF, right? Pre preventing uh, threat actors from interacting with like internal IP addresses. And I'm like, but they're not filtering out any sort of encoding on these IP addresses. You know, they're not, they're not filtering out uh, different types of payloads. They're only focused on just the class A, B, and C ranges of IP addresses. And so I reached out to MITRE, got assigned an ID, reached out, reached out to the uh, software engineer. And he's like, yeah, I could see where this is a problem. And he was like, can you uh, help me fix it? And in my head, I'm just like, what? You want me to fix your package? So I'm like, all right, well, could I fix it? Probably. Could I fix it well? Eh, that's another story. So then I brought in uh, Nick Scholar. In Nick other Scholar. words, you, you reached out to the guy who created this tool, identified the flaw, and he was basically like, hmm, I'm not sure I can fix that. Could you give me yeah. a hand? Which yeah, I, exactly. I a red flag. It was it was bad. I was like, this guy is not prepared <laughs> for what he's about to face. Yeah. Um, which was well, fine. We won't name him, but I mean, you can figure out who it is. But he's a Montenegro-based developer. He had a number has a number of different projects, but certainly nothing. Um, nothing. You know, I mean, like he was a developer. He was a solo developer, and this was more or less his project. He worked on it basically himself, right? Yeah. Yeah, that it was just him on the project. So, um, and, at this, and yet it was hugely, hugely po uh, popular. It, it. I mean, talk about how widely used it was. I mean, it was extremely utilized as a dependency, um, surprisingly in cryptocurrencies um, and all sorts of stuff, uh, hotels and and banks. I mean, you name it. It was all over the place. Um, and I kind of laughed to myself a little bit, um, you know, when we were in the process of fixing it, because like I said, I brought Nick, Nick Soller in and I brought sick codes in to uh, help help this guy write a patch, uh, which they did a great job on. Um, but when I was thinking about the impact of this, I, I laughed a little because I was like, I probably just made it a lot harder for a lot of security researchers because there's probably so many SSF uh SSRF uh, vulnerabilities that have been discovered through bug bounty programs and paid out for and then bypassed and paid out for again and probably even multiple times before people have caught it and said, oh, maybe I should get rid of this package and use something else. You could which literally... Is, which is, it's funny. It's funny. It is all funny. I just kind of, you know, just... <laughs> You know, if you if you were hip to this, you you really could have you could have made a pretty good penny just kind of going around and and right. iterating, iterating and not not addressing. Yeah, On, honestly, honestly, we we debated it, um, but but one of the you know just like going through like I'm not gonna lie to you, we we debated it. It was the big one. <laughs> a ton of money doing this. 
but but what I really thought about was just how I mean it, it would take time because nonetheless you would still have to find a, a point of point of uh, entry for an SSRF, right? So you would have to find a vulnerable part of the web application that is vulnerable to this SRF, SSRF, which within itself is bug hunting. So ultimately, it wasn't it wasn't an easy win. It would have taken quite a bit of time to fuzz for all of the SSRFs on all of these domains and, and look for it. And ultimately, we, ultimately, we were just like, you know what? Let's let's just do the right thing here. Submit this, get it fixed, and and it it was it was interesting when he fixed it too. A lot of companies started dropping it as a dependency. <laughs> I think more or less it it was the idea of just fear a little bit, right? Like when someone gets hacked, they they stop using that product, right? Um, I mean, the bigger you know, the bigger issue that 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 raises is, of course, just the 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 open source software supply chain issue. I mean, this is sort of where we were with um, Heartbleed and OpenSSL a few years back, and and there have been you know a number of other incidents since then. But you know, we, we're living in a DevOps world where. In uh, an agile world where developers applications are really pretty much assembled from these various open source modules and libraries and components and and while we like to think that there's a lot of you know security built in, this would suggest that a lot of people are kind of making the mental doing the shorthand of saying, well, you know it's got this many dependencies, this many other people are using it, somebody must have audited it so it must be trustworthy and I'll use it too. I kind of have a, a bleak outlook on this, right? I, I hate to be a Debbie Downer in any sense, but application security is is two aspects, right? All of your applications, right? Web apps and, and mobile, so on and so forth. And the second aspect and an and overlooked aspect is third-party integrations into the application. And I think that gets overlooked a lot but it's an important aspect, right? You're, you're talking about an application that may have full admin permissions to your environment. Um, and these supply chain hacks, especially when you're talking about like software engineering and um, different packages that can be built into tools that many enterprises are using, but are open source and, and they don't know what dependencies that package is using, right? Like that's a big issue and that's a, that's a huge part of the problem. Um, and then obviously that second aspect is we've, we're taking applications kind of into just a new world, right? Like it used to be simple. Now I, I wasn't in tech when it was, but now we're at the part where, uh, application stacks are just getting exceedingly complex, like the integrations, um, all of the third party, um, aspects of the application that are in play. It's, it's almost like, wow. Uh, just just thinking about it, like operating systems alone, one application could be the make it or break it that ends up in a very widespread exploit, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone, uh, a good example of that is is uh, uh, JetBrains, right? Mm-hmm. JetBrain, mm-hmm. JetBrains, uh, you know, there was uh, evidence or, or proof that led to JetBrains being compromised, right? Right. And you have to think, you know, how many software engineers use JetBrains to develop their enterprise code, right? Like, and they're just collecting all of that, right? You're not just, um, you're not just kind of uh, kicking back and, and ruminating on this. You've actually uh, stood up a new 
research group, and it's it's Sakura Samurai. Is that right? Yep. So it's a, a Sakura Samurai. Sakura um, Samurai. And t- talk about talk about that. Talk about the name, and talk about who's in it, and and kind of what your mission statement is. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Sakura Samurai was kind of uh, developed as uh, a hacking group stemming with influence from Cult of the Dead Cow. What I what I basically had the idea for was just a hacking group that wasn't a collective for one. We don't want to be a collective that's uh, just open to, to all because yep. Um, yep. I think the problem with that is you end up getting um, another black hat group. Um, and, you know, not all hacktivism is, is bad in the sense that uh, hacktivism has done a lot for our world, you know, exposed a lot of, uh, a lot of manipulation. However, that's just not the path that I, that I saw for this group. So I yeah. kind of made it very, you're only, very you're only ever as good as your most narcissistic sociopathic member. Exactly. 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 Um, and if Kurt's listening, that means you. So, <laughs> so, so when it, when it really comes down to it, um, I, I thought about, and when I say security research, what I really want to say is I, I really want to call it just what it is hacking. Right, we're hacking, we're hacking, but but we're doing it ethically. Right, we're we're going after bug bounty programs, we're going after companies that have vulnerability disclosure programs, and we're doing the right thing. We're disclosing it to them. And I know I hear a lot of grumbles, especially from members of, of black hat groups. They're not happy about this group. They think we're ruining ha- hacker culture, and I would disagree. I would say that the reason we chose the name Sakura Samurai is because uh, Sakura in Japanese means cherry blossom, um, which in Japanese culture is kind of rebirth, you know? So, so the idea here is it's play on words a little bit. It's the rebirth of, of hacking culture, you know? So yeah, I recruited some, some, uh, some members that I trust. So on that list, uh, the lineup, uh, we have Nick Soller who actually founded it with me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we're both co-founders of this group together. Um, he's a software engineer. He goes by Arctic. And then we've got Robert Willis. Robert Willis goes by uh, Regex. So he does offensive security and red teaming for the military. Then we have Jackson. Jackson's a unique member. He goes by uh, Conchi. And he is basically a 15-year-old hacker and a very talented one. A very, this. very talented one. Yeah. Yeah. I love that kid to death. Like seriously, he, he is a, a talented hacker. Yeah, so so he he's great. He actually kind of started the whole uh, United Nations hack debacle that 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 we just uh, pulled off. Uh, we have Allie Diamond. So uh, she goes by Shade. She's a software engineer. Uh, she's currently working on some other stuff right now, um, but she's going to be hopping in and taking a look at some of her projects real soon. And then we have the founder of Anonymous, right? Aubrey Cottle, a.k.a. Kurt Tanner. Yeah. And uh, it was, it, I, I didn't expect him to join. It, and yeah. it is very controversial. It's making a lot of people angry. So so talk about that. I mean, obviously, uh, um, Kurt Tanner, Aubrey, you know, very, very uh, storied past. Not not all of it uh, on the right right side of the, the uh, double yellow line. I was actually working on some research on Parler 
and researching their security vulnerabilities, kind of just poking for holes a little bit um, and just seeing what the platform was all, all about because everyone was complaining about it. And um, then I really started to uncover a lot about Q Anonymous and a lot of these conspiracies they were up to. And it looked like the classic playbook brainwashing of society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and then when I started to do more research, I saw FBI warnings on them, right? Calling them a terrorist organization. Yeah. I started to see all this kind of stuff and I was like, oh my God, this is like this yeah. is bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna research this more. So, you know, I started looking into them a little bit, started researching. Uh won't won't say too much, uh, but I but I found some stuff and and I ended up messaging Aubrey and just saying, Hey, you know, what if I found some stuff? Yeah, and because like, he's been very active and kind of trying to, uh, you know, stop pull, them, basically back, shut yeah, them down, them, yeah. pull back the curtains, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw that he was he was fighting QAnon, and I was like, he's literally fighting a terrorist organization, and and so many people probably have misconceptions about this, but I'm starting to see what he's saying because I'm I'm not on the surface level at this point, right? Like I'm I'm finding these Q anonymous domains. I'm looking at them. I'm looking at their methodology and their brainwashing. They're uploading playbooks of just insanity, right? To to try to target people and go after people. Um you know, and I'm like, this is this is bad. So I'm like, well, I should probably just pass this information to him. And then I ended up passing it to him and uh, you know, a, a friendship kind of started there, right? Where it's like, yeah, you've got a couple, uh, a couple pots on the uh, on the uh, stovetop right now as well. That things that um, uh, Sakara Samurai is uh, actively working on. Can you give us a little preview of of what you guys have coming up? Sure. So we we have uh, three things in the chamber right now, um, and I want to I want to mention, and and this is a great example. Um, these three kind of major vulnerability major vulnerabilities that, that we found, you know, if anyone is questioning kind of the ethics of our group, realize that we haven't even leaked any of this, you know? Yeah. And, and we found a ton of stuff and, and some of it is juicy. Like people, the media will want to hear about it. So, so one of them, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the things that, that, um, I had found, uh, I was actually doing some, some research, uh, on an application offered in a bug bounty program. It was like a executable mm -hmm. application. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't really getting anything or, or getting too far with it. And then I found a folder. Um, I was trying to find the root folder that it was in. And I saw an application in there that I had installed. And uh, it's a privacy based end-to-end -end encryption uh, communication platform. And mm -hmm. I was just like- Associated with a very well-known service associated with a well-known service and i was uh taking a look at this and going huh i wonder what's in this folder so i just opened it up and i see a bunch of files and i'm like well if it's end-to-end -end encrypted all these files you know should should be encrypted or garbage, or right, right yeah it should just be a bunch of garbage data that you could do nothing with right right and then i go in in a folder um and I find a privacy issue. Let's just say that. Uh -huh. um, and at this point, I was, I, I didn't believe it to the point where I kept doing, doing it over and over again and reproducing the flaw over and over again. Because I just was like, 
in disbelief. And then at this point I was like, all right, who's up, you know, like, so on our, on our group chat, um, for Sakura Samurai, I was like, all right, who's up and who wants in on this? And, uh, uh, I, I had, uh, Jackson and, uh, Kurt Tanner hop in and mm-hmm. they helped, they helped me look more and more. And we found even more exposure with this application. Mm. And at, at this point I knew it was bad. Um, mm-hmm. so the app has a, I will say either a vulnerability disclosure program or a bug bounty program. Mm-hmm. Uh, make it a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I reported it and they were like, ah, well, you know, it's kind of a minor issue and you know, this issue isn't quite what you think it is. And then I showed them more proof and they were like, okay, yeah, this is an issue. We have to investigate this more. Um, you know, this is what we project the CV rating to be. And I got a CV assigned for it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now I'm just kind of waiting on them to, to patch it so I could just drop it. Cause you know, this is something that the federal government can use against people. Mm-hmm. This is something that threat actors can use against people. I mean, there's a lot of aspects here that are, that are and in would play. This be a, would this allow kind of man in the middle type attacks? Would it allow just data, just, you know, data theft or disclosure? Or like- let's just say if you knew this was being, this type of data was, was being disclosed, you wouldn't use the application. Black hat for, for sure wouldn't use it. Yeah. And and regular everyday people wouldn't use it if they found out about it because they would think that they were secure in uh operating the app as they were operating it, right? Uh-huh. Um you know, same thing with security researchers too. Like I if if I found out about this, I probably wouldn't use the app because I'd be like, well, how could I trust them, right? They're affiliated right. with a major company. Right. You know? So that, I mean, that, execution or not? You need you need uh, local access, privacy based local access. Okay. However, um, to a lot of people, especially bug bounty programs, local access flaws aren't a big deal. But yeah. I think it, it's a giant deal for this company because yeah. Yeah. their whole platform yeah. is privacy, right? And it's yeah. a privacy vuln. Of course. Um, so yeah, it's it's huge. Like I wouldn't be surprised if either nation state threat actors were using this or if our own federal government was using it. And, mm-hmm. and I honestly don't know um, mm-hmm. that it's all speculation because mm-hmm. I have no way of proving it. However, it is quite concerning. So that, so that's one thing we found. And uh, final question, you're also doing a lot of work uh, looking, looking at government networks and, uh, and uh, resources. Talk, just talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the other two things we have in the chamber are two different governments in the same or, or government entities in the same country. Um, one of them is is uh, the entire federal government, and one of them is a more localized area. Um, and this is this is international government, by the way. Um, and we just found that both of these entities um, are just riddled with vulnerabilities. So, for the one vulnerability, actually, Jackson, believe it or not, Jackson found over 500,000 or roughly 500,000 uh c- citizen records let's say mm. so it's really really big stuff really yeah. juicy massive massive data breach um so he he disclosed it through their vdp mm-hmm. um 
honestly, I don't know how long it's going to take them to fix it. And and that's not considering some of the other bugs that he found too, like credential pairs and, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, what are some of the underlying problems that these governments are having? And I guess this would probably include the U.S. government and the state governments as well. But these are, these are international governments? Yeah, non-US yeah interna- international governments. So those are common regardless of whether you're talking North America or other countries. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, it doesn't matter what type of government you're talking about. The, the problems ex- exist all over. Um, uh, and that's, I, I guess, a good segue into the second government issue we found, which was Oh man. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. Like we're still, it's going to take us a few days to really go through all this kind of stuff. But at this point we've acquired medical records, uh, undetermined amount. We're, mm. we're still assessing the impact. Um, probably 70 or more exposed, uh, uh, get files where we were able to dump the projects on the domains. Uh, it's probably 70, like, roughly over 50 credential pairs for databases. I mean, the problems go on and on. Uh, police reports and records um, that aren't exposed publicly. So it's like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a huge it's a huge deal, but we're, we're trying to assess the impact and, and get it patched before releasing it, right? Because we don't want more people obtaining the data than pro- probably already have. John Jackson of Sakara Samurai, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. John Jackson is the co-founder of Sakura Samurai and an independent security researcher. Up next, one of the lesser reported subplots in a recent SolarWinds hack is the use of stolen or compromised digital certificates to facilitate compromises of victim networks and accounts. Stolen certificates played a part in the recent hack of Mimecast, for example, as well as in an attack on employees of a prominent think tank, according to reporting by Reuters and others. How is it that compromised digital certificates are falling into the hands of nation-state actors? One explanation may be that companies are managing more digital certificates than ever, but using old systems and processes to do so. The result? It's becoming easier and easier for compromised or expired certificates to slip through the cracks. Our final guest this week thinks we've only seen the beginning of this problem. Avesta Hajati is the head of research and development at the firm DigiCert. As more and more connected things begin to populate our homes and workplaces, certificate management is going to become a critical task, he says, and one that consumers and even businesses are ill-prepared to handle right now. What's the solution? Hajati thinks that more and better use of automation may be the answer. In this conversation, Avesta and I talk about digital transformation and how the growth of the Internet of Things is raising the stakes for proper certificate management, and why companies need to be thinking hard about how to scale their current certificate management processes to meet the challenges of the next decade. To start out, I asked Avesta how the COVID pandemic and the shift to remote work has impacted how PKI infrastructure and digital certificates have been used and deployed in the last year. Sure. My name is Avesta Hojadi. I'm the head of R&D here at DigiCert. Avesta, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, obviously, the big story of 2021 is the COVID pandemic. 
And, you know, in the context that we're having this conversation, just like the huge changes that the pandemic has forced on the workplace, right? And on, you know, how companies operate. You know, some of those were changes that were already happening, maybe slowly, but they happened a lot quicker once COVID came around. How has PKI played into that? And I guess I mean, how have you at Digicert noticed consumption of your service and and utilization of your services changed at the onset of the pandemic? And has COVID kind of identified or exposed some new PKI use cases that maybe we hadn't thought about before? Uh, Certainly. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, 2020 um, started by having only one story and that being COVID. Immediately, majority of the workers started to um, start working from home. And the remote work by itself went on a very incremental um, increase. So looking at that, we saw a pretty high increase of certificate utilization whenever you had workers where they had to work from home. They had to receive a certificate on their personal devices, and that was a method for them to authenticate back to the workplace. Utilizing VPNs um, or virtual private networks obviously increased tremendously, and that by itself does utilize some portion of PKI. The other portion of this for regular consumers was that um, we noticed a good amount of new e-commerce websites started coming up. Restaurants that before didn't have a website, they started having websites and they were able to have their menus online and users could have ordered the food from their website at this point. In all of the scenarios, you needed to have a secure method. Um, because like any other global problem that we might see, you usually have adversaries who are going to take advantage of, of, of these problems. Again, COVID being the prime example off of that. You will have adversaries who will start sending phishing emails and um, enterprises and smaller companies, SMBs especially, they had a way to actually be able to increase their security. And certificates was an um, easy, affordable, and a scalable solution for them. So in 2020, we actually saw a pretty good increase when it came to certificates, the exact figures aren't out. Obviously, we just started 2021 and you're still analyzing those data. But compared to previous years, again, employees going remote, more e-commerce websites are coming up. Uh, we saw more secure connections being established. As we're speaking right now, actually, the uh, consumer electronics show is going on in Las Vegas, kind of, except it's mostly remote. Also, it's not the usual spectacle that it is. <laughs> Um, but brings to mind that, you know, there's also a huge explosion in electronics, smart and connected devices. And obviously with some of the other things we've talked about, COVID and the shift to work from home, you know, a lot more of those devices are finding their way into workplaces. Talk just a little bit about how this Internet of Things, you know, explosion is impacting the work that DigiCert does. Let me start with uh, the big trend that we saw in 2020. As more telehealth started kind of rising up because, again, people rather stay home instead of having that physical interaction due to social distancing. What we saw was a good amount of medical devices were being shipped to consumers instead of being utilized in hospitals. And obviously, considering that most of these devices are connected devices, the security of those devices needed to be taken care of properly. So one trend that we saw was shipping these devices where they require to have certificates, where their database or firmers need to be updated and they require to be cryptographically signed. That was one area that we saw a pretty big focus on. Um, regardless of that, we actually have seen another area, which is general IoT devices. As any other individual who would stay at home, usually try to do certain things around your house, improve it, change certain things. In my specific case, for example, my IoT device consumption in 2020 compared to 2019 was much higher. 
I acquired new devices to be able to automate certain things around my house. And obviously that by itself just shows one sample, but I'm sure the rest of the society are feeling the same where they're able to, you know, modify their property, be able to add new IoT devices. You know, we're talking about this huge increase in the sophistication of the IT environments that organizations are managing, the growth and just the the number of certificates out there that organizations need to manage and also, you know, a higher bar in terms of how they manage them, you know, can't kind of set it and forget it, maybe like you could 20 years ago. That all speaks to the need for more automation. And, and this is a big kind of meta trend in security as well. You know, few, few hands and a lot of work. And so a lot of people are looking for ways to automate, particularly kind of rote, rote security work. And, and this applies in the PKI space as well. Could you talk to us about when we talk about automating some of these core functions, where there's room for advancement there and where some of the investment is right now in, in automation? Automation is a very big topic for us here at DigiCert. For the past couple of years, we have been focusing on this topic specifically because we realized that the problems that automation is able to solve. One problem being specific topics related to compliance. Our specific industry evolves almost on a daily basis around compliance. And once there's a problem, obviously you need to go ahead and replace that certificate. You can consider an enterprise with tens of thousands of certificates, all on different platforms in different regions. And often it's a cumbersome approach for them to be able to replace every single one of those certificates individually. So the approach that we have taken is to be able to automate this process via automated uh, certificate management, where you're able to log into our search central console. You're able to have bird's eye view over your organization as, as far as what certificates are being automated, which one of them you are able to automate, which one of them you are able to have a bulk uh, reissuance or in installation. And as we have seen again in 2020, COVID proved that automation is as important as anything else in your infrastructure. Um, example is if you have an IT admin who for any reason might be diagnosed with COVID and he can't work for the next you know, two or three weeks and a number of certificates that are going to expire during that, that period. Now, basically it's very hard to, to do anything because that admin is not there. He has to delegate some other individuals. In other words, we require to have a proper planning. Whereas if you have automation deployed, really that human factor by itself becomes a more role of a policymaker and a manager instead of individual who has to go ahead and replace those certificates. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges I would think, and particularly as you're moving to these kind of networks of things, is that, you know, not, first of all, you have so many different types of devices out there that that might have certificates that are part of their, you know, constitution that need to be managed, but where you don't necessarily have very good, you know, visibility uh, into those devices. They're not traditional IT assets. How, did, how does DigiCert kind of see that problem working itself out? So where, you know, it's, it's not just your web server and your web applications that need to be, you know, have their certificates updated, but it's, you know, the refrigerator and the employee commissary and, uh, you know, door badging system and coffee maker and those types of things. Definitely. This is, this is where we are taking the, I would say, a very old philosophy whenever we are discussing security. Many, many years ago, DARPA made a recommendation known as security by design. And the idea was that once you're designing an application or a device being a hardware, you need to think about security. Taking that approach, what we have been working on is a number of different methods which allows us, especially when it comes to IoT devices, to be able to 
be embedded within the process while you're designing uh, your IoT device. If there's a need for a certificate on that specific chipset, we do have capabilities to be able to give you that certificate, install it on that chipset. And once you're installing the application and you're sending it to production, you already do have the basis of security. Again, it is quite important to look at this from a number of different aspects because hardware is only one part of this story. And obviously, IoT devices are everywhere. But if you look at it in the modern DevOps, when you have your continuous integration and continuous delivery, the same scenario applies. Instead of writing the application, building the application, and then requiring a certificate for that, or any other security requirements that you may have, the developer by itself could think about adding that certificate into the build process. They could go ahead and utilize one of our APIs where we have integration to Chef, Puppet, Salt, and many other DevOps orchestrations, and you're able to receive a certificate and deploy it in production. Again, I think this is more, more than just a certificate. If you have to go by the philosophy that, as I mentioned, DARPA had, security by design covers every aspect whenever it comes to security and application development. I think you're right on. I think that's kind of where it needs to go. I guess, how do you, how do you evangelize that down into the development community? And, and, you know, I'm thinking kind of CES and if you go and read the, the brochures and so on of the products on the floor at CES, there's just not a lot of focus on security. There aren't a lot of details uh, for many of these connected products about the underlying security of communications and data that they might manage, even for very sensitive products, you know, medical products and things like that. How do you nurture that security that, you know, what we saw at Microsoft, you know, 20, 20 years ago, you know, the sort of secure computing memo, that type of focus, singular focus on security within some of these um, development organizations where, you know, time to market and, and usability and features might be the, the focus? I think the unfortunate truth about this is often security will be sacrificed for um, either usability or uh, for go-to-market um, timeline. As you mentioned, you know, uh, majority of the manufacturers are trying to rush for the process of having a product and be the first in the market. And for that, security by itself will be sacrificed. And obviously, later, they will pay a very high cost for that. In order for us to solve this problem, we have taken two approaches. Um, one is every single customer for us is a unique customer where we have different type of products available for them. And we try to be as part of their product development process instead of only being a provider. You can think about every single customer of us being a partner. Once they decide to have an application or a hardware where it requires a certificate, we will be part of their design process. We provide our guidance as well as uh, run a number of different POCs. And um, that's part of a job that some of my team members are doing as part of the R&D team, which is looking at the specific use cases and they try to help customers to have the right approach for their application. The other portion of it is regulations. I think. This is somewhere that as an individual entity, we are able to work on and we are able to help. But the enforcement of this comes down to regulators, comes down to governments. Especially you mentioned medical devices. Back when I was getting my master's, I spent about two years working on infusion pumps. And I read almost every documentation about infusion pumps to identify what type of a security guideline FDA provides for this specific devices, FDA and FCC um, in combination. And the language by itself, at least many years ago, was very vague. You need to have the security. This is a security level that you need to have. And if that language is vague, it makes it much harder for the manufacturer to be able to actually understand it, let alone being able to enforce and develop that. 
And as you know, of course, there have been demonstrations of, of cyber attacks on infusion pumps, right? At Black Hat and other shows, uh, as well as other, other types of interventional medical devices. So that's interesting. We talk a lot in security about, about the shift left, right? About how security is moving closer, you know, left into the development into the development pipeline as opposed to right, you know, into, you know, production, post-production. Is DigiCert shifting left as well? And, and kind of what does that look like? Absolutely. We are trying to get to, I probably would call it zone zero than anything else. As I mentioned, security by design has been a philosophy for us, and we are trying to promote that. In uh, at least the products that I specifically cover, our goal has always been to be able to integrate to a number of different third-party providers, especially as far as DevOps. I mentioned a couple of names, Salt, Chef, Puppet, uh, Kubernetes, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. more those, those kind of key development tools and platforms, right? Exactly, exactly. So the closer that we are able to get to those providers, the more um, functionalities we are able to provide. And this has been, again, a philosophy for my team and for the products that we are working on, especially when it comes to automation. We are trying to make it easier for developers to be able to acquire security services. And obviously, our goal um, now and in the future will be to focus on being closer to that rank zero and be able to have the ground of the security and start building on top of that. So, I mean, one of the big challenges always is there's just so much legacy investment, so much legacy technology out there in enterprises, especially even in high value sectors like you know banking and finance. Oh, my gosh, you know, 30 or 40 year old technology sometimes. How do we um, push those people uh, onto more modern platforms, get them to let go of some of that legacy investment and, um, and kind of level up their uh, security around certificate issuance and management? Absolutely. Look, transformation doesn't happen overnight. But what could potentially happen overnight is a big catastrophe where your infrastructure could be down because you did not spend the days upgrading and changing and having a very solid infrastructure. We do see customers where they have thousands of different workflows, and often they don't want to get, a, get rid of some of those workflows because they're so invested on those because they believe the customer downtime is going to hurt them on the short run compared to the long term of you know, upgrading those infrastructure. On the other hand, um, as I mentioned, moving towards more DevOps applications such as Kubernetes, dockerizing the applications, going more on the uh, microservices architecture is the new trend. In the customers that we have seen where they have very old infrastructure, often what we try to do is we try to stay with them as much as possible. Again, our number one priority has always been customers, has always been to have a very solid uptime and be able to provide their security needs. And uh, what we have seen, again, as far as trend is uh, customers are start um, approaching their infrastructure and their distributed models in a sense of what is known as bucketing. You're trying to bucket your application based on the language that you have, how old that application is, and what the business case might be. And obviously, security is slowly getting into those areas. So um, again, this is not going to happen overnight to get rid of the old infrastructures. Um, we are seeing uh, different trends in the industry where you're able to transform your application either by rewriting them or changing your um, infrastructure approach whenever it comes to designing your next generation platforms. Okay, final question. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about kind of the big security story of, the, of at least of 2021, which of course the Solar Winds compromise that had to do with a compromise of their build process and and then some malicious, uh, some backdoored updates getting pushed out to uh, you know more than 10,000 customers. Obviously, if a if a sophisticated adversary actually 
infiltrates your build process, that that's difficult not to crack. But it, when you look at the kind of bigger picture questions around supply chain, software supply chain, is there a role for PKI? Is there a way, or are, are companies either not managing PKI as effectively as they could or not applying it as effectively as they could to secure software supply chain? Or is there a way that PKI could be used to shore up some of these software supply chains? Definitely. Uh, let me start with, it's, it's quite upsetting to see that we are still dealing with supply chain security, that this problem is evolving over time. But you mentioned two very specific points. One of them was, do enterprises have the capabilities and expertise to manage their PKI in order to have um, a more secure supply chain? And after the answer is no. At Digital, we have been doing PKI for for quite some time. Let's say since 2003, we have been in this industry. And we do PKI and we do PKI right. But often what we have seen is others will pick up either open source projects, they will purchase PKI, and they will assume that's all that they need to have. Nurturing a proper PKI solution, especially when it comes to supply chain is very important. Being able to have proper code signing for your firmware updates where your keepers are being protected on paper could be very simple, but in theory is very hard to, to manage. And what I've done here at DigiCert is to make that process very easy to be able to utilize. And again, my hope is at least in 2021, after hearing about all these problems and attacks on supply chains, the industry can take a different look at utilizing PKI to secure their supply chain and manage the product. The other portion of your question and the point that you mentioned was, is PKI the right solution? Especially when it comes to supply chain security, the answer is yes. PKI has the scalability. There are a number of different deployment models as far as being an on-prem or on the cloud. And obviously the solution has been around for quite some time and it has proven to be useful officially when it comes to use cases such as updating firmwares, sending packages where they require to be cryptographically signed. Last word that I will add is, for the folks who are listening, we need to focus on automation in 2021. I think 2020 gave us enough reasons to think about that. We need to start delegating certain things to applications where they're running over and over and they're doing one thing and they're doing it right. Especially when it comes to certificate, I think automation is essential. Automation is necessary and having proper scalable and functional automation solutions in place, it's definitely the beginning of your PKI journey. Vesta Hajati, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you for having me. Avesta Hajati is the head of research and development at the firm DigiCert. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast was sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity automation, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com.